Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk will be continuing our journey through God's Word as we look at O One a Night from Luke chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. If you're looking for a church home, a place to call your own, we invite you to come and worship with us at Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you have questions, you can visit calvaryfayetteville.com or send us an email at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or just give us a call at 479-442-4634. Let me take this opportunity to invite you to join us on Christmas Eve for our candlelight service beginning at 430 in the afternoon. Again, this is an opportunity for us to come together and to, to worship as we head into the Christmas Day celebration. Well, let's listen to Pastor Kirk as he shares with us from Luke chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Back in the 60s and 70s, some of you can remember those decades, the greatest years of rock music. Can I get an amen? That was just my opinion. My humble but most accurate opinion. Anyway, back in the 60s and 70s, Frankie Valley, a name some of you will recognize, and a group called the Four Seasons, definitely made their mark with 29 40 top hits. And they had 29 of those top hits. So many of those songs I could sing for you, you wouldn't recognize one of them if I did. But one of them had words that went like this. Oh, what a night. Back in late December in 63. What a very special time for me as I remember what a night. Well, he goes on to describe having met the girl of his dreams on that night in late December of 63. Oh, what a night. Well, I want to talk to you tonight, or today, about uh, a message entitled, Oh, What a Night. It's where Frankie Valley probably got his idea, because I want to suggest to you that the words and the message of the song were not original with him. Instead, they could have originated with some shepherds living 2,000 years ago there near a little village called Bethlehem. The very same shepherds of our text may well have written those words this way. Oh, what a night. Late December, back in 3 B.C. What a very special time for me as we remember what a night. Well, what a night indeed when these shepherds there on the quiet chilly hillsides outside of Bethlehem were suddenly lit up by a light in the sky and by an angel speaking to them. Let's walk through those verses again and let me make a couple of comments about them. It begins in verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. These were just Average Joes and Jills working the night shift. Here they were, very lowly people, 
very earthbound people. People that didn't usually entertain a lot of high thoughts and a lot of high ways. They were considered to be the least of the least. But those are the kind of people, now listen to me, that have time to think and time to listen. Not to the local news agency with a deadline to meet or an agenda to push. And not to some politician seeking a photo op did these angels come to. Instead, they came to shepherds. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And you would have been too. Right? Great fear. Everyone thinks they'd like to see an angel until they see one in all of their glory. Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The gospel is good news. And this is the beginning of that gospel story as it unfolds with the life of Jesus. Now, the gospel is in the Old Testament. It's all through the Word of God. But here it begins to take place in a physical, measurable way. For unto you is born, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You won't find him at Jerusalem Regional or Mercy General Hospital, but in a Bethlehem barn. Is this not a strange place? to begin the story of a Messiah. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude. That word means fullness. It means magnitude. It means a throng. It means it wasn't a group of angels. It means the sky was filled with angelic beings. It's the word we get our word plethora meaning an abundance or a surplus. There was a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Did you hear that? Peace with those with whom He is pleased. The news of a Savior and Lord is not good news for everyone. Even Jesus said, the one who said, I come to bring peace. He also said, there are those for whom I have come to bring a sword. When the angels went away, verse 15, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, no time to waste. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, a feeding trough. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. You see, good news can't be contained or held in. It must be shared. And one of the greatest assurances that you have Christ living in your life 
is that there is an urging, maybe not always responded to, but there is something inside you that wants to share that good news. Verse 18, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them, and their lives were changed forever. And from that day forward, they would often declare, Oh, what a night! What a night! What was it the angel said about what he would be called? Verse 11 tells us he will be a savior. Christ, Lord, and you'll find him wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, a feed trough, in this little out-of-the-way place called Bethlehem. These words don't make sense. They really don't fit when you think about them from a human perspective. These men and women were the first to hear the news of the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And who were the first to be able to see him and acknowledge him besides his mother and his earthly father? Who was it? It was shepherds of all people, not kings, not prominent people, not great leaders, but nobodies. And with the exception of John the Baptist, who acknowledged Jesus as an unborn baby, and take that into consideration, all the debate and discussion about abortion and abortion rights, and is an unborn child truly a child that can know anything? John the Baptist did, and he was the first to acknowledge Jesus in his mother's womb, and then Mary and Joseph, and then as far as the people of the world, these shepherds, these Joes and Jills of the hillside working the night shift. What a welcoming committee for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Here's the key truth. I hope you'll lock away. If you don't remember anything else today, maybe you'll remember this. We'll put it on the screen. The Lord speaks and reveals himself to those who have time to listen. The Lord will always speak to and reveal himself to people who have time to listen for him. If your schedule and your life is so busy that you don't have any time to spend with God in his word, you don't have any time to be faithful to God's house and to meet with God's people. And you don't have time to just sit quietly without a TV going or your iPod going or your music going. If you don't have any time just to be quiet before God, don't expect God to ever speak to you. It's going to take a hammer over your head to get your attention. Free up time every day to listen for and listen to God to speak to you. These shepherds had a lot of time on their hands, and they heard from God in a most miraculous way. 
Now, looking back, what was it that the angel said uh, about this baby? Who is this child? He gave three names or three titles. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Savior means a preserver, a deliverer, someone who will rescue us. Christ means the anointed one, a Messiah, or in this case, as we know, the Messiah. And then Lord, a master, an owner, a sovereign deity in this case. Now, what's the significance of those names? Have you ever thought about that? What's the significance of any of the names of Jesus? Did you know that in the Bible, he is referred to by at least 260 names, titles, and descriptors? Did you know he's referred to by that many different terms? Emmanuel, what does that mean? Do you remember? God with us. He is called in John chapter 1, the Word. He is referred to as the Son of God and as the Son of Man, indicating His humanity. He is the Lamb of God. He's the light of the world. He's the King of the Jews. He's the bright and morning star. He is the Ancient of Days. He is our Redeemer. He is the, according to Malachi, the Son, S-U-N, Son of Righteousness. And the list goes on and on, and in keeping with our theme, and the beat goes on and on and on. So many names and titles, but I want you to focus on those three, Savior, Christ, and Lord. It's very important we understand who these names refer to and why they are given to Him. Now remember... That the Old Testament Jewish people were looking for and longing for a promised Messiah, right? They were living every day. Guess what? Religious Jews today are still looking. They're still waiting. They're still longing for a Messiah, not realizing that they have already missed him, at least his first advent. Well, now, in the Old Testament storyline... When you think of these three names, Savior, Christ, and Lord, understand that some could debate about the title Savior or the title Lord. For you see, in the Old Testament scriptures, there were several, quote, saviors of the Jewish people, right? Joshua saved his people. He rescued them. By the way, Joshua is just the Old Testament name of Jesus in the New Testament. And so Joshua was a deliverer for his people. Noah, we talked about a week or two ago, he was a deliverer for his people, was he not? What about Moses? He was a great deliverer for his people. What about Esther? She was born for such a time as this, to rescue and save her people. So some could say, well, look, there were several saviors, so to speak, already in the Old Testament. 
And also in the Old Testament, we could easily refer to King David as Lord, for he is referred to as Lord. He was a, he was a, a king. He was a royal leader. We find that the Messiah will always be from his lineage. It will always forever be son of David. Some could say, well, David was a Lord. David was a kingly figure. We know he wasn't the ultimate kingly figure. Jesus is. Just as Jesus is the only ultimate Savior. But someone might say, well, okay, we'll look at one of these others as being our Savior or our Lord. But what about the word Messiah? I want you to focus in like a laser with me for just a few minutes on that term. Messiah. Who else could be named the Messiah? Nobody in history. Nobody in the Old Testament or since Old Testament days would ever be mistaken to be the Messiah. That's why the Jews keep looking for him. So let's talk about what the Messiah means. What does it mean when we use the term Messiah or in this case Christ is how it's used in verse 11 of our text. Christ is the same as Messiah. The word means anointed one or chosen one. It is in our English language Christ. That's why it says Christ here in Luke 2.11 rather than the anointed one. But it's the same word. It's the same word. The name Jesus Christ is the same as Jesus the Messiah. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. Jesus was his given name. Jesus, the son of Joseph, is how he would have been referred to in his day of those people who just thought he was the son of Joseph and Mary. But Christ is, is his title, Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Now, it's very important to understand that this word Messiah, Christ, means anointed one. Anointed one. Do you understand the concept of anointing? There are certain people in the Bible that they are anointed for their office or their position. And the anointing was a physical act that symbolized a spiritual reality. It's when oil was poured over the head of a person to anoint them, to designate them. And what the anointing meant was three things. That this person had been chosen by God, sovereign choice. It means that from this day forward, they will be empowered by God above, divine empowerment in some cases, to work miracles, in other cases, to act as God's representative. And that number three, there would be supernatural results or outcomes from their ministry. Sovereign choice, divine empowerment, supernatural outcomes as a result. Now, what people were anointed in the Old Testament? Do you remember? Again, there's only three. Prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, priests, and kings. 
These are the ones that are the anointed offices in God's service. Now that's not to say that at some point there was someone anointed that wasn't God's choice, that men used physical acts to go ahead and anoint or whatever. But when it was done as God wanted it to be done, such as Aaron as the first high priest, and you have Psalm 133 talking about uh, what is it like when God's people dwell together in unity? It is like the oil that was poured on Aaron's head that rolled down off his beard and onto his garments, his high priestly garments, and dripped off of the very bottom of his garments onto the ground below him where he stood. That this was a symbol of God, a symbol, the oil of God, the Holy Spirit, coming upon him and empowering him for service. Why prophets, priests, and kings? Because the prophets were God's messengers to share the word of God that people needed to hear. The priests were God's mediators to stand between God and men and make sacrifices acceptable to God, benefiting the forgiveness of sins for the people. And as a king, as the master, the one to be followed and obeyed. God told Elijah to anoint Elisha to succeed him as God's prophet. God said to anoint Aaron as the first high priest of Israel. Samuel was instructed to anoint both Saul and David as kings of Israel. And so prophet, priest, and king. But the Old Testament predicted a coming deliverer. And this deliverer, the Jews called the Messiah of God. The Messiah. Understand that when you look at the Old Testament scriptures and how they are recorded for you and me, and how they are especially recorded for the people of that day, you can see in the way in which the Jewish people saw and anticipated their Messiah. If you read the books of the law, the Old Testament books of the law, they anticipated a high priest who would come and make offerings according to that law. And many instructions were given for the priest there. If you read the books of history and Psalms, you'll find that the people anticipated a king. They were looking for a king. But when you get to the books of prophecy, you find that they were anticipating the great prophet the prophet of God, who was going to be the Messiah, Jesus. It's interesting when you read companion Psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24, that Psalm 22 describes a crucifixion hundreds of years before anyone was ever crucified as a method of capital punishment. In fact, when Jesus hung on the cross... And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I often think of that, of, of the Father turning away, of Jesus being abandoned, of Jesus in confusion, in his pain and suffering, but nothing of the like is taking place. You know what Jesus was doing? Back in New Testament days, understand, the Old Testament did not have chapters and verses. 
You didn't have it divided up for ease of finding certain passages like we have it. It just read kind of as a continuous story. When you have the Psalms, you just have these Psalms that are not numbered. They just go one after another. And if you wanted, if you were a priest and you're going to read from Psalm 23, you wouldn't say Psalm 23. You would say, the Lord is my shepherd. And everyone would know Psalm 23 is your text. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is quoting from Psalm 22. And you know what he is doing? He is saying to everyone that is there that was watching that could hear that what they are seeing in him is that suffering Savior described in Psalm 22. He is saying, yes, what Psalm 22 described, this is it. Turn to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you will read about the suffering Savior. Psalm 22 was the good shepherd dying for his sheep. Psalm 23 is the good shepherd living and making intercession for his sheep. Psalm 24 is the king coming back to get his sheep. So you have prophet, priest, and king. A prophet dying. A priest living and making intercession. That's where we are today between the two advents. We look back at the suffering Savior. We look back at the one, the prophet who died in our place. We look forward to the king who is coming back to get us. And that's what Psalm 24 is all about. So that's the whole idea of Messiah in the Old Testament. They were looking for this Savior. They were thinking of a prophet. They were thinking of a priest. They knew that they had a king that was going to arrive someday. Messiah means anointed one. It cannot mean or refer to any other than the one who is the fulfillment of those promises. So point number two is Jesus the Messiah. And the question is, who is the one to fulfill that role? To the Jews, it hasn't happened yet. But I say to you, we know for a fact that it was Jesus the Messiah. Amen? That Jesus fulfilled those promises. Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. John chapter 20 says this in verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe, listen now, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Not only do we have proof that Jesus is the Messiah by his miracles, but we have proof by the testimonies of other people who testified that he was the Son of God. I think of the Roman centurion standing near the cross who says, surely this is the Son of God. We also have, most of all, his resurrection from the dead as proof that he's the Messiah. He is the prophet because he embodied and preached the word of God. He is the priest because his death atones for our sins and reconciles you and me to the Father. He is a king because after his resurrection, God gave all authority to him. 
The Jews of his day were looking for a Messiah who would overthrow Rome and deliver them from Roman rule so they could go back to the glory days of their King David. What they did not realize was that he did not come to be, first of all, the king of the Jews, king of the world kind of Messiah. He came to be a savior to save them from their sins. And that's what they missed. Back to the verse that we read as our call to worship, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's Jesus the prophet. He spoke the words of God to the people. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, that's the priest. After Jesus made purification for sins, offering himself, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the king, prophet, priest, and king. Joel Beek, who is the president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, says this. Listen to these words. Our Reformed Forefathers, drawing on a perspective traceable all the way back to the 4th century writer Eusebius of Caesarea, found it helpful to think about Christ as a prophet, priest, and king. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, for instance, puts it this way, Christ and Christ alone is fitted to be mediator between God and man. He is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. Beloved Jesus, make no mistake about it, it can be no one else. Jesus was and Jesus is the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah. He is our prophet our priest and our king. He and he alone is the Messiah sent from God. It is the truth of Scripture and it is our history as Baptist. Going all the way back to the earliest mention in the days of Eusebius, up through the early Baptists, the London Confession of Faith, and on to our day today, we stand here in a long line of faithful saints who believed in Jesus as the promised one of God, as the prophet, priest, and king. It's why we sing the hymn, Praise Him, Praise Him. You know that one, don't you? These words penned by blind Fanny Crosby, who was the author, get this, of 8,000 hymns. And this is what that stanza says, and praise him, praise him. Praise him, praise him. Jesus, our blessed Redeemer. Heavenly portals, loud with hosannas ring. Jesus, Savior, reigneth forever and ever. Crown him, crown him, prophet and priest 
and king. And I'm going to tell you, if Fanny got it right, and if Eusebius got it right, it's right. Why? Because it's founded on the truth of the Word of God. Christ is coming over the world victorious. Power and glory unto the Lord belong. Praise Him, praise Him, tell of His excellent greatness. Praise Him, praise Him, ever in joyful song. Well, let me draw this a close and ask the question, what does this mean for you and for me? Please excuse me for just a moment. The meaning of the Messiah. It means Christ. It means anointed one. The only ones who were anointed were prophets, priests, and king. Those who gave the message of God, the prophets. Those who mediated between God and men, the priests. And those who were the masters that they were to follow, their, their earthly kings. But we know that all of this is just a representation and a foreshadowing, giving the people an understanding of the Messiah who was to come because he could be confused with no other. He is going to be the prophet and priest and king that we all need. And listen, I know you're not a Jew living some 2,000 or 4,000 years ago, but you need a prophet. Did you know that? You need a prophet in your life. You need a priest in your life. You say, oh, wait a minute, preacher, we're not Catholic. No, but you need someone who can make intercession between God and you. You need a king to submit your life to and to fully bow down to and to follow. Jesus is that one. So what this means for us, let's ask the question, what if I don't submit to Christ in those three ways? What if I, I don't surrender my life or bow my knee to Jesus as my prophet, my priest, or my king? What of it? What difference will it make? I believe that if you do not surrender yourself to Jesus under the new covenant that was shed by his blood and made true, as he being the absolute leader of your spirit, your soul, and your body, then you will be in deep, deep trouble. When I am my own prophet, when I don't surrender to Jesus as my prophet, then I become my own prophet. I become my own messenger. I become my own arbiter of what is true and not true in the world. When I am my own prophet, I'm willing to believe half-truths or complete lies rather than what God says about me in Christ. You see, I become my own self-salvation project. 
I determined for myself what is my truth. You hear that kind of term thrown around today, that you've got to discover your own truth. You've got to discover what works for you. You've got to find what your truth will be. And I want to tell you, from one sinner to another, you and I are not capable of finding our own truth in this world. We will end up chasing lies. We will end up believing half-truths and complete lies. We can be led totally astray. Understand, the wisest man that ever lived, King Solomon, still only had half of a heart for God. The wisest man who ever lived. The scripture says about him, he followed God, but not with a whole heart. What gives you the idea that you are wiser than Solomon in determining what truth you need in your life? You need a prophet. Now, God's given us lesser prophets, pastors, teachers, authors who write good things, truthful things. But you need an ultimate prophet in your life. You need Jesus Christ. Because without him, you'll be trying to save yourself with whatever truth makes sense to you. And you are very likely, I can almost guarantee you, you're going to get it wrong. When I am my own prophet, I'm willing to believe half-truths or complete lies rather than the word of God, what God teaches me in Christ. Those words, those you know, your truth and whatever works for you, it might comfort you for the moment, but it cannot heal, pacify, or bring peace. It might help you cope, but it cannot save you when I am my own prophet. When I am my own priest. When I am my own priest, that I know that atonement has to be made sacrifices have to be offered. And instead of appreciating the atonement made by Christ's death, I seek to make atonement by the way I live. Did you get that? Is that on the screen? Yes, absolutely. You see, if you reject Jesus as your one and only mediator, then to make atonement for God, all you have left is what you can come up with. Your good works, your religiosity, if that's a word, I think you know what I mean. Your own goodness. I seek to make atonement by the way I live. Being religious thinking that my spiritual performance, my good works, can appease a guilty conscience and attempting to anchor my acceptance to God in the ever-changing nature of my efforts of being righteous before Him. My sacrifices undermine the sacrifice of Christ. And in an effort to make atonement for a miserable day, I find reconciliation in what I can do to make my life better rather than believe that Christ's death gave me life abundant and everlasting. It might make sense to you and me that God ought to be happy with our efforts of trying to appease Him or please Him. But understand, there is nothing you could do 
that is more reprehensible to God than to try to substitute your good works or your good life for the blood sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. Understand that to try to save yourself or please God in your efforts rather than accept the forgiveness and the mercy and the security you have in the shed blood of Jesus is self-righteousness, and self-righteousness is an awful sin to God. When I am my own priest, when I am my own king, when I am my own king, I convince myself that it is better for me to rule my life than for King Jesus to be my master. When I am my own king, I determine that I am more suited to make decisions for my life than God is to make decisions for me. The domain of my existence does not declare Jesus is Lord when I do that. Through a life of repentance and faith, but rather it testifies I'm in control and I'm living by my own foolish wisdom. And there's not a person sitting in this room right now that doesn't struggle with that. Amen? I struggle with it. Having my life the way I want it, how I want it, is a sure way to build a kingdom on sinking sand leading to a wasted life. Messiah, anointed one, the one chosen and anointed by God for divine service. Prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament were the living day-to-day example of those who were anointed for service. But none of those were the true prophet, priest, or king. They were only a picture to foreshadow the one coming Messiah, the one truly anointed by God, to be the one and only prophet who can teach us truth, the one and only priest who can make intercession for us with his own blood and his own life, the only one who is worthy of being our king, worthy of our devotion and our praise and our obedience every single day. My friend, that is what the Christmas message is all about. And that's why the angels said to those Joes and Jills on the hillside in that time so long ago, oh, what a night. Why? Because in the city of Bethlehem, just a little ways away, there is born one who will be your Savior, your Christ, your Lord. Declare this with me. It's on the screen. Let's say it together. I am grateful that God has given me His Son, such a wonderful Savior, who is for me a prophet, a priest, and a king. One more time. I am grateful that God has given me in His Son such a wonderful Savior who is for me prophet, 
priest, and king. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for our prophet, Jesus, who teaches us and guides us in truth. Thank you for our mediator, Jesus, who offered himself as our great high priest and sacrificed himself for our sins. And thank you for our coming king, the one who is the master of heaven and earth. And may we live as though your kingdom were already here, for it is in our hearts and in our church. May we live under King Jesus every single day. And I pray that you be honored and glorified with all of our thoughts and with all of our words. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.